So many of us have heard of C.S. Lewis, and honestly, he's become a cliche almost in Christian circles, but, and we do quote him quite a bit, and when I do, I typically quote him in screw tape letters. Um, I find that to be an amazing work where he, it's not a very enjoyable read, honestly, but it's an amazing work for its profundity, and of course, this is this, his, his sort of allegorical story of, of Screwtate, who's the devil, and he's giving his nephew Wormwood advice as to how to tempt Christians. And one such temptation or a piece of advice goes like this. If you're patient, that is a Christian, a young Christian, to be tempted. If your patient can't be kept out of the church, he at least ought to be violently attacked to, attached to some party within it. Now, I don't mean on real doctrinal issues. About those, the more lukewarm he is, the better. The real fun is working up hatred between those who say Mass and those who say Holy Communion when neither party could possibly state the difference between the two. You know, uh, many have taken that passage and, uh, and others like it where Lewis is talking about Christian unity and seemingly dismissing uh, that there are real issues that uh, that Christians need to to believe. And of course, I think this passage he makes it clear he's not doing that. Um, C.S. Lewis, and even in the Screwtape letters, uh, he's very very clear that his understanding of the church and he means the organized church uh, is an essential element of the gospel and Christian spirituality, but. But it is curious that in this day and age, you would read this kind of a passage, and I've seen it actually used to make the case that that if you think about it, um, that, that somehow the church, that is the church that is organized in all of its, quote, denominations, is, is rooted in the fact that the disunity of the church is rooted in the fact that, that there is organized church. And I'm sure you can probably understand that. I can. In fact, if you were to ask your friends you know, that are not believers, perhaps you're not a believer yourself, and that's fine, we're glad you're here. Um, if you were to ask someone, you know, what, what are the things that really prevent you from, from becoming a Christian? And there was a survey done on that not long ago, and of course right at the top is the hypocrisy of Christians. Um, now, just on the side, the, the the hypocrisy of the Christians is a kind of ironic because if it's true Christianity, at the very core of true Christianity is that we profess to be sinners. And therefore, don't be surprised if I actually act like one. And I will at times. And yet we're in a journey seeking God's grace to, to of course, deal with that. Um, but the other, number two, is always the disunity issue. It's, it's the way in which I see Christians and they don't have unity. There's so much disunity. And you could be speaking of all kinds of unity, you know. Um, it could be organizationally speaking unity, as in all the different denominations. It could be just the way in which Christians, you know, treat each other, get into factions. You hear horror stories about churches and the way that they divide and they split and things of that nature. So, it, it, you know, I can get it. I used to say the same thing. It is ironic, though, because uh, if, and this is coming out of a long 350-year tradition, but, but the very things which I think we tend to associate with uh, disunity 
Things like joining a church, mem- the whole issue of membership. That's the problem. If we just weren't, if we're all just kind of not members of this or that, then maybe we would have more unity. Or the issue of uh, organizing a church. If we just quit organizing churches and just being Christians together, or the issue even of, of having officers, elders, or shepherds, or some kind of governing body. Now, the problem, of course, is that if you read the Bible, there's just so many things uh, that would be absurd if you didn't have some of that. But I'm not here to, def- that's not my point today. My point is to actually beg the question, um, what is unity? And it's interesting that, well, let me just take you back. Let's, let's say you were part of this tradition, our tradition, Presbyterian, and, um, and you were part of a group that wants to become a church. Well, here's what would happen. And this has been in the books for hundreds and hundreds of years. A member of the organizing commission, that is a, a commission of the church, the Presbyterian church, would we meet with this core group, and, um, and, and they would uh, look at this group, and they would ask them this question. They'd say, we do this to this day. We did it down in Fairfield, for instance. Do you, in reliance on God for strength, solemnly promise and covenant that you will walk together as a particular church on the principles of the faith and order of the Presbyterian Church and that you will be zealous and faithful in maintaining the purity and the peace of the whole body? The purity and peace. What's interesting here is that it views the organizing the church as a pursuit of not just purity, but peace. It's a peacemaking endeavor. And what's really interesting, as you begin to see, is that it, peace and purity are not contrasted. And because that's the way I typically think of it. You know, I think of purity, well, it's for the sake, it's in pursuit of purity that we get into all our fuss, and it threatens our unity. But they see peace and purity as actually codependent in the way they stated it. Okay, so then you go on, and let's say you want to join a church. Let's say you want to join this church. The question you would be asked. You would be asked five questions. The very last question. Do you, blah, 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 promise to study the church's purity and peace? There it is again, purity and peace. Now, it's not accidental. It wasn't just a, it's starting to show a pattern here, right? And then, if you were nominated, elected, and willing to become a pastor, like Craig or myself, or, say, an elder, a shepherd leader of this church, You'd be asked this question. Do you promise to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace and unity of the church, whatever persecution or opposition may arise unto you on that account? Peace and purity. What does that mean exactly? Is there a relationship between the two? Is purity kind of in tension with peace? Or is purity and peace, one without the other, is not true purity and peace? 
How is purity and peace accomplished on a personal level? These are big questions. And these are questions that, you know, I hear all the time, even if not phrased in those terms. And so let's look to the Lord, because here is a passage where the tradition of the church would have, would have looked, or not just this passage, but the whole context of Philippians here, would have looked to answer that question. So let's, let's ask the Lord for, for help. Lord, thank you so much for um, the warning that we heard through C.S. Lewis, and we grievingly confess that it's a serious issue because we do confess that there's much disunity among those who would describe themselves as Christians. It haunts us, Lord, because we know that you gave the world permission to judge us, our authenticity by our love one for another. It haunts us, Lord, that Christ prayed for this unity, this peace and purity, his last prayer for us. Make them one as, Father, we are one. And so, Lord, help us to know what that means, and especially in a way that's relevant to our lives today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you heard the the passage in Philippians, a fairly short passage, uh, which will encourage you on a day like this. Um, But it is a passage that you could put together uh, and see that there's, basically, it's divided into two major commands. Command number one is stand firm, there in verse one. And as you'll see in the context, he's talking there, stand firm, as in a concern for purity of devotion to Christ. Don't waver from that purity of devotion to Christ. And then the second command, verse 2, is be of one mind. Applied to the whole congregation and then especially to two Christians specifically. Now the importance of these two exhortations are illustrated by the mere fact that, that Paul here, this language, stand firm and be of one mind, is taken from the, or the exact, it's the exact words that he used to introduce chapter 2 and to introduce chapter 3. In chapter 2, it was this issue of unity, be of the same mind. In chapter 3, it was this issue of purity, of devotion, stand firm. And so it's very clear that Paul is is really, really concerned about this. And he is now sort of, in a sense, wrapping up the really the, what has been the whole uh, uh, sort of purpose of Philippians thus far. And it's interesting because he's, he's playing a little trick on you because he's kind of doing it in the diverse order. You had uh, chapter 2, which speaks of unity, chapter 3, the purity of devotion, and then he now reverses the order in the way that he does it here. He's really trying to just get it into you, so to speak. And so that's pretty cool. So here we have then this, let's start with a stand firm, this impassioned plea. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord. It's directed to the whole community, notice. And also, it's particularly referencing the context of chapter 3 here, where we learned a couple of weeks ago, that what he means by standing firm is to remain, to press on, not to negotiate this single, focused, pure devotion. Not a devotion 
that's been syncretized with other devotions and loyalties, a devotion that's purely focused on the prize. Do you remember what the prize was? Of course, it's the hope of the gospel. It's the prize of resurrection from the dead and citizenship in a eternal and glorious physical heaven-on-earth reality that is the prize. And he's therefore repeating what he said, that they need to stand firm on this whole thing. I'll just remind you what what he said there in chapter 3. Brothers, he says, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, having already been defined as, again, the resurrection of the dead and from, as related to citizenship in, in this earthly heaven that is awaiting all true Christians. This, this is a major theme, of course. And, and so what's really interesting is, is when you look at this word stand firm, it begins to show up everywhere if you were to do a word search in the Greek, everywhere in Paul. One particular, a couple of particular ones here, as to help you understand what he means by stand firm. One is in 1 Corinthians 16. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Now that sounds sexist. Uh, It it is in the masculine, but I think it interprets itself to be uh, both humanity, kind of like the way we used to use men. Act like real people. Be strong. Clearly, this idea of to be to stand firm is is all throughout Paul's writings, and you can see that everywhere. Uh, it, it invokes the notion of courage. It invokes the co- cur- uh, of, of pressing on through uh, straining or obstacle. Um, it invokes the idea of being single-minded and focused in the ways that he will use this. You know, not that we lord it over your faith, he says later in Corinthians, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. And on and on it goes. Now, of particular interest in this passage is the way in which then Paul relates this theme, standing firm in the purity of focus concerning the hope of the gospel, to then this specific appeal, verse 2, of peace. And so, look at what we do here. We move from stand firm, and again, speaking to this purity of devotion. And then that begins to relate to the issue of peace or unity. Now, what I want you to hear me say before I start rattling this off, but I'll just tell you what I'm going to say and then I'm going to say it, is instead of thinking of peace and purity as a tension, as in we got to, it's kind of like two uh, opposing, <coughs> excuse me, I'm getting a little cold here, two opposing sort of ideas. You know, it's hard to be one when we're trying to always be pure. It's hard to be pure when we're always trying to be one. Because we typically think of ecumenism maybe sometimes as, a, as an exercise of, of uh, compromising our beliefs in order to sing kumbaya together. You know, it's that kind of thing. So, so there's this notion sometimes that unity requires that we limit sort of our essential doctrines. Or we do away with, like I said, any kind of organization, organized unity in preference for a kind of unorganized you know, relational 
unity only. Um, I'm going to argue, or what Paul's going to say very clearly, is that he's been playing these two together because he says you can't have unity without purity, and you can't have purity without unity. And that's going to beg the question, what does he mean by purity of devotion, or standing firm in this purity of devotion to the prize? Well, if you remember what Paul says, he's going to talk about things he had to lay aside in order to be purely devoted. So notice how you use the word purely there. I'm using the word purely. So do you remember back in Ephesians chapter 3 where he, what he had to let go of? He says, I've already quoted, but he says, laying aside, he, laid, he had to lay aside his Roman citizenship. He had to lay aside his family identity as a Hebrew. He had to lay aside his, his academic credentials and his prestige that was associated with that. Now, you could argue that, in fact, Paul will argue in chapter 9 of, of Romans that all of these things he cherishes. He cherishes his family. He cherishes his Roman citizenship. He cherishes the, 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 the study and all the learning that God had given to him. These are things that are all very good things. He cherished that he was a Hebrew. But, see, Paul's point is, is that to stand firm in this pressing on towards the prize he had to learn that all of these became secondary, and we talked about that a couple of sermons ago, that all of these he was willing to lay aside for this single focused devotion to the gospel and the hope of the gospel and the desire to see that gospel spread throughout the world. That was the big prize. All those other things could not bring that big prize. Why? Because fundamental to Paul's worldview is that what we are all longing for, what we're all hoping for, Whatever we hope to accomplish through family, through, through state, through politics, through academics, through all of these things, as good as they are in their temporal realities, that what we are really waiting and hoping for can only come by supernatural power. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the coming of Christ again in that resurrection power. That's the only, it's the only way it can happen. That's what he, he's learned. If you read, for instance, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, everything in my whole life and ministry would be in vain if it weren't for the resurrection of the dead. Because everything we would try to do, and you know this, right? You're, you guys aren't, you know, you, you, got, you got this by now, you know, that you can try and you can try and you can try to make your family a little better, to make your marriage a little better, to make everything, and you can make some progress, yes. We believe there's a bit of a kingdom of God coming right now, but, but at the end of the day, it just never. Fully satisfies. That song we sang, I mean, it was interesting. You kind of said, even if you don't feel it. Well, you know what? Sometimes I don't feel it. And sometimes you don't feel it. Because it's just not really whole yet. It's not full yet. So what Paul is talking about is a, de- a, a devotion, a purity. He says in Corinthians, oh, I pray that you are going to lose sight of the simplicity and, de- and purity of devotion to Christ. And in order to have that kind of devotion to Christ, and therefore to put everything aside if and when it's going to in any way diminish the missional power of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel, I'll be, Paul would say what? Things like, I'll be a Jew Jew to the Jew and a Greek to the Greek. Now, he's not saying, I mean, he likes his Jewishism. He likes his Jewishness. That's not an anti-Jew thing. 
That's him saying exactly what Christ, what, what Paul said in chapter 2. When he says, have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. What did Jesus do? Do you remember? He laid aside. He put aside his glorious status and divinity and became a human like us. He was willing to take what was a good thing, but for the sake of the gospel, put it aside. If you're really thinking, you're starting to see the connection. You Very vaguely, you're starting to see this little dotted line that I hope to make a full line. Because think about it. What is the cause of divisions in the church? I'll even say, honestly, if we were to evaluate denominations, especially denominations, so many of them that have derived out of the Reformation in the 16th, 17th, 18th you know, century sort of thing, so many of our denominations, and I confess to say even ours, it's sometimes hard to untangle how much of that denomination is the gospel wed with a national, a national pride or a national or an ethnic community. I mean, if you know about Presbyterians, you know, we kind of get our roots from Scotland. If you know Anglicans, you know that they kind of get your roots from England. If you are Lutheran, you know you get your roots from, you know, Germany, and off we go. And sometimes it's honestly hard to distinguish. Well, what, what part of Presbyterian is Scottish, and what part of Presbyterian is Jesus? And I could say that for the others. Now, that's a sad thing. Let's just say it. You know, and Paul was dealing with it in a very hyper way because he was seeing the church of Philippi getting where, where people's own identities, whether it's their class identity, their educational identity, whether it's their, you know, all those things that I talked about, you laid aside, that those things, and it's always the case that we tend to make it religious. And when we make these things religious, now they become part of the gospel. So now we're starting to see something. Purity of devotion to Christ. A devotion that transcends all of those isms and all of those identities and all of those demographics and all of the various social, political issues that come around all that stuff to the degree that we can be single-focused and distinguish the pure gospel and to stand firm in holding fast to that gospel, you can see is the degree that we're going to be able to have unity. When all the other temporal characteristics of us become secondary. I didn't say that they're bad. I celebrate being a man just like I hope you celebrate your being a woman. I celebrate you being... Anglo, just like I hope you celebrate you being African-American or Asian or whatever. These are should be cel- And in heaven, they will be celebrated, quite, praise God. We're not going to neuter them. They're all going to be beautifully magnified even and celebrated because we'll have it together by then. We'll be able to distinguish all of that and its beauty, like a, a beautiful fabric of art, you know, that God has built with all this multicolor, multi-form expression We're going to celebrate all that in heaven because we know how to distinguish all of it in its beauty from the gospel. 
But this side of heaven, we get really caught up in all these identities. I think you're pretty smart, and you know exactly where that would go, even today. So here's what's going on. Paul makes this amazing link right like that. It's interesting how quickly he then moves to verse 2. And that was all meant to segue there. And here he quotes, again, something he said in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, complete my joy by being, this is in chapter 2, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Now, what does this be of the same mind, the second command mean? Don't think of that in a Western post-enlightenment way where we're thinking mind means intellectual. It's, it's much deeper than that. It's, it's almost soul. It's, your, it's the way you think of life, yes. It's the way you approach life. It's who you are and the manner in which you live. That's be of the same mind in this mind quotation, not, not intellectual knowledge, though that's part of it, but be of the same mind. And, he, and, and so here Paul repeats that, of course, in this impassioned plea for unity. Now, just one more thing before we look at this. To see the connection between chapter 2 and chapter 3, Paul is giving us these now two commands, one relating to 2, one relating to 3. And what's really interesting, just to show you how powerful this argument is, and I didn't see it until this week, he starts off his argument in chapter 1, saying them both, just like he's saying them both now in chapter 4, in his conclusion. So here's where he says it. Philippians 1.27, he says, Only let your manner of life, that's almost close to be of the same mind, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are, here it is, standing firm in one spirit, One mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Right there is the only place we see it in the same clause. Standing firm, one mind. Chapter 2, one mind. Chapter 3, standing firm. Chapter 4, chapter, you know, standing firm, one mind, back again together. All sandwiched with two and three. And what he is saying, very clearly by this outline, the two are inseparable by the very nature of them. So let's look at the unity side. Now, what's extraordinary here, I mean, this is remarkable. In fact, this is the only time I can think about it. Maybe, Craig, you can correct me on this. But I can't think of another time where when Paul is admonishing someone, he calls them out by name. This is a pretty big deal. All the commentators are going ballistic about this. You know, what does this mean? Here's, remember what it said, I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. That word, by the way, in the English is the translation, to be of one mind, in the Lord. Now, what does he mean by this? What does it mean that he specifically named these two people? These are two women who are in Philippi. And what we know about them is what we see right here. And so, here's what we need to ask. First of all, what is the significance of these two women? And how does that relate to the kind of na- the nature of unity that Paul's talking about? So first, what do we know about these women from this text? Well, what we know for sure 
is that these people are key, significant leaders. I know that because Paul describes them as those who, quote, labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. They are fellow workers. I mean, this is, this is a word that Paul often uses when he describes those who participate in the gospel ministry with him as an, in, a, in a kind of an apostle, apostolic way. We also know that these two people are described as laboring side by side. Uh, that word labor means that they struggled with them. They toiled with them. They, they were, there was pretty deep stuff going on there. In other words, it's, it's, it's more than just, uh, he's my co-laborer in the way we use it sometimes. But it's, they were with me side by side when we were persecuted, when we were struggling. So in some manner, when Paul was in Philippi, you'll remember he got persecuted. When the church was born, it was born out of persecution. Paul was actually, it was one of his worst moments uh, in Philippi. I don't know if you know the story of Acts in 16, but, but eventually it led to him being stoned uh, almost to death. And it was also the beginning of what many would describe as the major persecution of Rome because the people who did it, these Judaizers, they followed him now for the rest of his life. They just took off. I mean, it was their passion. Wherever Paul goes, we're going. We're going to disrupt everything he does. And it started in Philippi. So evidently, while they were in Philippi, in the birth of this church, these women were laboring with Paul, side by side with Paul, and now evidently they are you know, they're being described with some pretty positive language right there. They had women as, uh, that, that, that we have work, workers in Philippi that would, uh, be women should not, by the way, surprise us. Um, you may remember in chapter 16 of Acts that, that when the, the, the church was formed by this group of what we call God-fearing Gentile women. Uh, these were two of them, as well as, I mean, uh, Lydia. Uh, the evidence from Acts indicates that at, at their conversion, um, Lydia, for instance, became a patron both of the small apostolic band and the Christian community. She was a head of household, and in and, and that day, if you were a head of household, you were also a leader in the church, by, by de facto, basically. And so, you have these, uh, and, you, and it was interesting, too, I was noticing this, that... <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. <clears throat> that uh, that Philippi was sort of known for being radical in that day, and some think maybe this was even part of that. But he, here's the point I really want to get at: these women, in general, had a larger role in public life uh, than perhaps you would find even in other areas of the Roman Empire because they lived in Philippi. And so here, here's what you have to see. First of all, the first thing I'm seeing is, okay, these were not two just sort of, you know, gossipy, you know, women who are causing problems. We don't see, we're beginning to get a sense that, no, these two people were two leaders and evidently related to the problem that Paul has already re- talked about. They represented two factions in the church. One Gentile, perhaps. One in Hebrew, we don't know for sure. But secondly, notice, the letter where they're being called out would have been read publicly in the congregation. That's how this worked. Apostles' letters would come, they would have a congregation, and it would be read publicly. It's, it's to the great credit, you could argue, of the Philippian community and of Judea and Syntyche in particular, that Paul 
considered them mature enough to be able to handle such an unusual admonition. It's, it's worth emphasizing, you see, that because many readers tend to view Eudea and Syntyche as, as, as sort of, again, as some kind of negative light, troublemakers in an otherwise model church, quarreling, cantankerous old woman, perhaps. That's not what's going on here. These are highly respected. Paul himself declaring them to be his co-workers, women in the Philippian church. Now, just a couple of notes here. I don't want to spend time on it, but then he invokes some unnamed person to help mediate their coming together. We don't know anything about this person. Some have have speculated it might be Luke. Most likely it was uh, probably a local pastor of some sort. We don't know. So he invokes this unnamed person to help mediate. That sounds very much like Matthew 18, when two people are in a problem. Let's get someone to mediate it. He also invokes Clement. This is not the Clement of church history. This is someone we, again, we really don't know who he is. But evidently he was some significant leader there as well. But what I want you to hear first of all then is that, that, that therefore there is this amazing focus for Paul on the essentiality of unity for the sake of purity. Keep them together. And finally, then, let's look at the nature of unity itself here. It's interesting, the same verb used here, and in verse 2, in chapter 2, verse 2, have the same mind, you remember, is the verb he urges the Philippian church to follow after in his own example. And it's interesting that he contrasts that in this passage, in three chapter 3, verse 15, he contrasts that with those who have set their mind on earthly things. Now, what do you think an earthly thing is? I think most of the time we tend to think of my love of, of drinking, you know, my love of sex, my love of money, you know, earthly things. And indeed, there's relevance to those things, perhaps. But if you look at the Paul's argument here and, and a very similar argument in Corinthians, it's pretty clear what he's talking about are not bad things, but good things. Good things that bring about all kinds of earthly power, prestige, privilege. Like, again, education, Roman citizenship versus being Greek, uh, or all, on it goes. And so you begin to get this pattern here that, that I've already set up for you. And he then describes, he says, the problem with these dogs, that these two women are not, is that they allowed their appetites, their appetite for power, privilege, and prestige to, to leverage their temporal identities and loyalties in a manner that compromised a purity of devotion to the gospel and putting it first in the life of the unity of the church. And so it's pretty clear to me that what's happening here is that you have basically, um, you could say there's, there's five types of, of Christian unity. Um, and maybe this will help you a little bit. I get these five types by a guy named John Owens uh, in the 17th century who studied it. Some people describe Christian unity, um, and they would talk about unity of confession. Um, that would be a kind of unity that says you and I can be, we can come together and organize ourselves together into a family of God 
because we believe, confess the same things, doctrine, if you will. So it's a unity that we would describe as having, as having a consensus as to what the scriptures principally teach about the gospel. We have a confession of faith. And you could, and that's good. So in some sense, you, see, unity, and this is why I get, you know, we need to remember that unity is a little more nuanced in scripture. And you could have some unity without having other unity. So I may, for instance, have unity with uh, a lot of churches because we more or less share the same theology of what we believe. Maybe put it in different forms, like Westminster, Heidelberg, some other confessions. But we could share unity and say we're going to have unity and use multiple forms to do that. Some denominations do that. I think it's a good thing, actually. But we might not share unity about what we would describe as order. Order gets to the issue, if, if the unity of confession gets to Christ as prophet, unity of order gets to Christ as what? King. How does he govern and rule his church? Now, there are churches that are, say, you know, one, one, three major things that we have out there. Some churches say, well, God governs us through, through a congregationalist-based governance. Others will say, no, it's a hierarchical-based governance. So say congregationalism over here. I just mentioned Anglicanism here, hierarchical. And then there's another group that says, no, we do it by representative by representative council. You call that a session, that's Presbyterians and others like us. Those are basically three. So you could say, for instance, hey, you and I have unity of confession, but we but we really don't agree that this is the way Christ governs his church, so we're going to be governed this way even though we have the same confession of faith. And then there's the unity of, of what we'd call sacramental unity. That's a unity now that goes deeper into the reality that, that to the degree that we share the gospel of grace and are united to Christ, even if we got a lot of other things wrong with us, to the degree or differ, differing things about us, to the degree that we share that union in Christ, we share the Lord's table. So, for instance, you'll notice here, when we do the Lord's table, we frequently make the point that this is not a Presbyterian table. This is not a table that requires that you adhere to this form of order. It's not even a table that could, where, you could, where you'd have to come by subscribing to all the things that we believe are in Scripture doctrinally. As long as you share in the very core of union with Christ by grace through faith, this is a table that we share in. So right off the bat, I'm beginning to give you a little more interesting picture. If you talk to someone, oh, we're just against, you know, organization. No, see, on the one hand, I'm going to say, if we could check off all three, we have more unity, not less. But on the other hand, we're not going to say that just because we can't check off all three, we have no unity. So I'm just saying that. That's a, that's a nice little advice. for When you talk to someone about this issue of Christian unity and love and all that, begin. it's not quite so either-or-ish. We can have unity but we'd like to have more unity, right? But my point in saying all that, real quickly, was I don't think that's anything to do with what Paul's dealing with. The kind of unity he's talking about is what others would describe as the unity of gospel mission. What I mean by that is that Paul is clearly addressing this multinational ethnic class context of a church. All things that are not bad in themselves, but things that have become too important in a manner that then diluted the purity of devotion to Christ. 
And so they are exhorted to do by way of Scripture is, I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Agree what? On what is the pure gospel? Mission. The hope of the gospel. And I think that's where this is all going. Finally, I want to say one more thing. Notice uh, something maybe throughout this, verse 1. Notice the love that Paul had as he said this to these people. In other words, the most striking feature I find of the two appeals here being brought now together, purity is peace and peace is purity, the most striking thing that I see here by these two appeals that relates directly to the matter of Paul's love, it's almost as if he's just mediating the love of God through his love for this church. I mean, did you notice how it it went, the remarkable elaboration that Paul used here? I mean, he could have said, like he always normally does, and addressed them as brothers and sisters. But no, he says, my brothers and sisters. My beloved. And then he goes on to say, those whom I long for, my joy, my crown." You see, the appeal itself is being followed by the repetition two times of beloved ones, beloved ones. I mean, this is a profusion of modifiers in a single phrase. And what do you think the point of that was? I think what he's trying to say is, you're breaking my heart. You're breaking my heart, Philippians. And so I want us to stop and think about that. Isn't it noteworthy that the last prayer that Jesus made, the prayer of John 17, before he was to die, recorded at great length and detail, was a prayer to protect us, his church, in the purity of the gospel in so many words, and to keep us as one, as He and the Father are one. You know, some of you have parents, I mean, uh, children, not many here, I guess, but I see a couple. Um, I think it's the only metaphor I know that speaks to how powerful that prayer is in John 17. During the Civil War, there was a uh, man named Charles Hodge, great theologian uh, in the 19th century, wrote profusely theology. We study him even to this day. His son, after, you know, uh, wrote a biography of him, was the first to write a biography. In fact, and there's a whole lot of history surrounding that biography because he almost, ru- someone else was going to do it, so he rushed it to the press to get it done. And what we discover now from a historical, you know, going back in history, is that Charles Hodge lost his mind at the end of his ministry. He went insane. And everyone who knows him by testimony says what what happened to him was it broke his heart to see his students, to see his church divided and fighting each other. And I don't know that it's possible for me to convey. You see, it's not like if my kids, Stephen, Nathan, Anna, we're not talking about, you know, watching them fight in the backyard, kind of, 
division here. I'm not talking about that. I mean, what would happen if I saw my children, who I love, not just just fighting, you know, stupidly, but I mean there was a real schism between them where they weren't talking to each other anymore. They can't be in the same room together kind of stuff. Where they're not sharing the inheritance, the love, everything that my wife Lisa and I tried to give to them. It's all just broken apart. It would break my heart. It would absolutely break my heart. I I would consider myself a failure if it was that horrible. Now, I want you to imagine your Father in heaven. As we are knowing him through the Gospel of John 17 and the last priestly prayer of Christ, Lord, protect them. Save them from all the things that would take them from this hope of the Gospel. And Lord, make them one, even as we are one. This issue of unity is a big deal. Imagine how it breaks God's heart when he sees his church passive-aggressively throwing barbs at other portions of the church, not actively, but passively, when we put on Facebook, or when we do whatever we do, and we take language or things that the other part of the church cherishes. Maybe they cherish their socio-cultural, economic identities. Maybe they cherish their family heritage. And we start throwing barbs at them and everything that they put their hope in with respect to their family heritage as Christians to Christians. And it goes back and forth. Can you Can you just for a moment try to get into the heart of God and say, what is this doing to him? When he sees things that are so unpowerful as to accomplish the hope of the gospel, being wed with the gospel, so now the gospel isn't a pure gospel, it's a diluted or perverted or, you know what I'm saying, impure gospel, and then with the religious zeal that was meant to, to promote the purity of the gospel, with the religious zeal of devotion, of a pure devotion to the gospel that was meant to protect our unity, as Christ had prayed, we now have taken that same zeal, attached it to our whatever our identities are, instead of laying them aside for the sake of the gospel, we attach them to the gospel, and now what do we have? Fractured, divided church. It is rare for Paul to name names. The language, it hit me like a ton of bricks this week, studying this. I'd never really seen it until then. Because if I think about it, this intense, passionate, affectionate language for the church had been there all along. It started in chapter 1. He says, how I have you in my heart. We read it real quick. And so what I want to convince you of, this is the take-home, it's really quite simple, is Paul is wanting us, his church, to hear. God said, there's absolutely nothing that you cherish that is more important than cherishing the gospel. 
And the gospel is not just about doctrines. It's about love, one for another, in the way in which we remain one. It's about a people who can set aside all their temporal differences, differences that have no power whatsoever to bring about what we're really wanting anyway. To set them aside and really make it our ambition to be reconciled with every Christian we know. And the odd thing about it, so important was it, so much of it, so much of this is inherent, ontologically inherent to the nature of the gospel and our communion with Christ, that Christ gave the world permission to judge us as authentic or not based on our love one for another. You ever thought about that? They have every right to do it. And so this is just a plea. You know, maybe you should ask, maybe you could ask a couple of questions to yourself here. What are some of the ways that we could be more intentional about this pursuit of Christian peace and purity? Remember how I define purity? Because purity does not equal doctrinal agreement. It's purity of devotion to the gospel in a manner that says, I will not compromise that purity of devotion to the gospel. There's nothing more important than that. Which then will create and produce in your relationships a unity or a peace of relationships. Because I will look to you and I will say, there's nothing you could say to me. You, 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 you. There's nothing you could say to me. No matter what you're loyal to, to, there's nothing you could say to me that's going to prevent me from being committed to you in unity. Because what commits us together is the gospel. So what would that look like? Are there earthly loyalties and affairs that need to be reevaluated in your life and mine, in our church? I mean, there's some big lofty things that I'm thinking about in my head, given my responsibilities, you know, but what are your responsibilities? You know, is this, is, is this a, a day for a neo-denominational movement is what I'm thinking? Getting rid, trying to self-consciously get rid of Scottish and German and and English and trying to put together a new reality of, of union? That's a denom- bigger denominational question. But it needs to come down to is, is there someone in my personal life that I need to go to and say, you know, there's nothing more important than you and me as Christians get reconciled. We'll go the full extent. I'll lay aside everything else for that to happen. That's what I hear here is what he's asking us to do. Let me end you with another quote from C.S. Lewis. It's a little bit long, but I'll just, this will be it. Dear, my dear Wormwood, you are no doubt aware that the Americans are amidst one of their most important and highly revered seasons of life. And I'm not right, I'm tired of the politics, by the way. I don't even want to talk about it. In fact, I'm tempted not to read it. So don't think of this as just being about politics, but it does kind of come in. He says, if you aren't already, it is high time you involve yourself in the lives of a distinct group of citizens. I think you know who I'm talking about. But in case you are unaware, I'll save you the speculation. Your most crucial work is amongst the Christians. He's talking about how to tempt America's Christians. This should be one of your easiest assignments, for it won't take much for you to drive them to one of two positions regarding the candidates. Now, let's just, instead of put candidates, political candidates, 
Let's put one or two positions about economics. Let's put one or two positions about how to love the poor. Let's put one or two positions about how to do refugees. Let's put one or two positions about how to, how, you, know, uh, the, the, you know, this view of, of, of women, this view of women in the church, or this view. Of, let's get all this stuff out there. All important stuff. Not one of those things are negative. Those are all topics worthy of discussion. It needs to be. And I could go on and on and on. You know, just everything. <laughs> things that divide us red and blue. Things that divide us in all kinds of constituencies out there in America. He says, um, for those inclined towards great political or social or economic or whatever concern, your task is slightly more nuanced. You must push them towards two important conclusions. You must first convince them that their preferred candidate or position about temporal affairs is the only option for true Christians. Well, that sounds familiar. And that voting for any other position is not only wrong, but also evil. They will see this binary model on display and the candidates themselves, and, and the tendency away from moderation coupled with the seductive pull of extremism will prove too much for many Christian voters and they will divide into opposing parties most naturally. Divisions is inherent in the system and getting them to the furthest edges will be all too easy. Once you have them firmly entrenched in their opposing camps and their battle lines are nicely drawn, you must quickly cement their unqualified and unquestioned faith in their chosen position. They should not be too difficult in the American context as the Americans are constantly confusing and muddling their religious faith with their national and patriotic allegiances. You will need simply to further this confusion by getting them to move their hope away from our most dangerous enemy, Jesus, and place it in their candidate. In other words, make Jesus into their, their, their position or whatever. For you see, nephew, the most dangerous Christians are those whose loyalties and allegiances are undivided. When their faith is placed in Christ rather than any other issue, they are most threatening. These Christians will also be most likely to realize that their power to affect change in the world is enormous and will thus be greatly concerned about affecting the world. Tenting them towards apathy will be impossible. And once they realize that their holding to whatever position, here the word voting, is only one small and relatively minor way of bringing about their desired change, we, my nephew, are more or less doomed. Amen.